0: welcome back to another episode of the tartar project thank you so much for tuning in hey it's me phil toronto your faithful host today i sat down with daniel who is the founder and chief proprietor of almentari flanore almentari flanore is an exquisitely curated produce market with their first story and listen on later in the interview to hear why I call it that. But their first story located here in the Lower East Side of New York City. We cover the importance of travel and how that impacts your life view, which simultaneously impacts your approach as an entrepreneur and how important that is to Daniel's journey. We talk about the importance of building a business through intention and keeping your message and your ideals and your brand goals as authentic as possible. Possible to both who you are and who you want the business to be. We also talk about the impact that his family's business has had on his own approach to what he's doing now. There's a lot of relevant pieces that all have come together to culminate what he's building with Alimentari Funor, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So without further ado, we're going to dive right into speaking with Daniel. Hey, everybody phil toronto we're back with another episode of the tartar project today i have daniel founder of alimentary flanore thank you so much for joining us
1: thank you phil really excited to be here
0: could you give the tartar project viewers listeners a rundown on what you're building with alimentary flanore
1: yeah of course so alimentary flanore um is really about connecting people to the intimacy of every day so um I started this market, a produce market, a few months ago, and simply what I wanted to do um, was really try to connect people uh, both to the intimacy of shopping in a charming, curated market um, that serves seasonal, fresh produce, Um, the simplicity of really enjoying that grocery shopping experience and that ritual of coming to somewhere, uh, whether it be, you know, my store or your local neighborhood deli or coffee shop, et cetera, but really uh, appreciating uh, the simplicity of a ritual like that. And then the third and most important thing uh, I would say is the intimacy of genuine connection, uh, both with me at the store when you come meet me, or, you know, when you bring your provisions home and you share a meal with your wife, husband, friends, lovers, etc. cetera, um, understanding that there's like real intentionality and connection behind that act. So in short, uh, Almond Tire is a produce market, but it is every bit a love letter to the three values of quality, simplicity, and intimacy that we really are trying to build this world by.
0: And that's incredible. One thing I wanna highlight that we touched on right before I hit the record button on this because it, it made me feel really nice was I apologized to Daniel about butchering the name of the company, because as much as I attempt to speak Italian and French and stumble through each, I didn't have the confidence to just let it roll off my tongue with Alimentari Fenor. So one of the bits that I want to speak to is the approachability of the brand, despite uh, potentially seeming intimidating. So uh, I wanted to highlight that for the listeners and viewers. Do not worry about a pronunciation. It's all about the spirit.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I, I'm glad you shared that because that's something I was really excited about talking about today, which is that, you know, it's funny if you think about like being in Paris, like there, it is true. The adage of like Parisians can be quite rude, but I, there's authenticity in that even like you almost come to revere it because it's kind of funny, you know, and like, it doesn't stop me or prevent me from like trying to speak French woefully, you know, I still find it beautiful, And then, like, you know, Italians are so convivial and joyful. And, like, even if you say, like, ciao, buongiorno, like, they're so, like, filled with love and joy. And so, like, I love that duality, you know. And as far as the brand is concerned, I mean, yes, I think to a lot of people it might come off as, you know, perhaps pretentious or even, you know, a little intimidating. But I think the beauty in that is that when you come and meet me and you come to the store and you, you know, discover things like black garlic or... Um, you know, Lucy Glow red flesh apples or Kyoto carrots, and you think, oh, wow, this is so weird. I've only seen this on like menus of like really high end restaurants. What you'll soon discover by me walking the store with you is that this is really an invitation to discover things together um, and to like really enjoy that and to have it not be about pretense, but really about the thrill of discovery. Um, And that's what I'm most excited by. So even if you don't speak Italian or French, I promise that you'll come to the Alimentari and you'll start to feel like you can.
0: I, I can I can vouch for that because it's some of the most delicious produce that I have enjoyed. So thank you for that. We're going to take a ton of steps back now. Daniel, where'd you grow up?
1: I grew up in a town called Fresh Meadows in Queens um, and then in New York. Uh, and then I also moved to a town called Roslyn Heights in Long Island uh, in New York. So I, I had two very different childhoods. <laughs> Yeah,
0: totally. <laughs> and when you were growing up, how important was school to you or your family?
1: Yeah, I. it's interesting. I mean, for me, I was always a really excellent student, um, but I, my criticism on the report card every year, probably since first grade, was that Daniel is very bright, but he talks too much. <laughs> uh, and so I, I was always more interested in like having a good time at school including with my teachers like just having conversations with them than I was about like applying myself so I was kind of lazy as a student because you know I kind of just did well because it came natural to me but you know by no means was I like you know uh, like uber uh, focused on my studies Um, and as far as my parents I mean they always wanted me to do well but it was kind of my mom was more strict and my father, if I ever got like, you know, a bad grade, I'd go to him and be like, Oh dad, I got like an eighty five and he'd be like, Oh, great job, Daniel, that's fantastic right. and sign my test. Whereas I knew if I brought it to my mom, she would be pissed. So, um, for them I think uh, school was merely just a way for me to become educated and, you know, just really uh, develop my own kind of um, idea about the world they never really thought of it as anything more than that. You know, they, they they always just wanted me to work. uh, Both of my parents are entrepreneurs. So um, that was the most important thing to them.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. And with both your parents being entrepreneurs, did you have any sort of entrepreneurial bug while you were in school or did that kind of come later in life?
1: Yeah. I I would say that in high school, I, I, I was always, my uncle used to tease me about this. He called me Ben Franklin, the man with all the ideas Um, But I think I was always someone who was just very curious. And so I, you know, wrote for the school newspaper. I, you know, joined various clubs. I I started a stock trading like group or whatever, but I never really committed to anything. It was always more just like, hmm, this seems interesting. I'm going to try it. Um, And so, yeah, in high school, I I kind of didn't really have an entrepreneurial drive. And then in college, actually, after my freshman year, um, I was interning at Merrill Lynch, uh, which was pretty cool. And I thought that I wanted to be, uh, in finance. Um, and I remember like watching wall street and like idolizing Gordon Gekko and being like, Oh my God, this is so cool. You know, greed is good. Greed is good. Yeah. I convinced myself of that argument. In fact, like I'm almost embarrassed to share this. I probably shouldn't, but my first ever election, I voted for Mitt Romney. Like I was, I was fully committed to the part. (laughs) And then I, I actually, uh, I traveled to Europe for the first time, uh, my freshman e- uh, freshman year of college summer, by myself, and um, I, you know, just changed my entire life changed after that summer, and I ended up dropping out of school um, that semester back in the fall and founding an app. Uh, so yes, I did have an entrepreneurial bug. Um, for better and for worse (laughs) what
0: that's that's super interesting because the first time I grew up terrified of flying and my family and I drove everywhere and it just that was a whole thing and I didn't cross an ocean until uh, almost uh, until I was in my 30s which was insane and that that trip in and of itself just that distance just immersing myself in a different culture for the first time and actually being there. That really changed me. What was it about that trip that changed the direction of your life? And and actually, before you answer that, where did you go?
1: Yeah. Um, so, well, I should caveat by saying my, my family, my father is from Portugal and um, we have family there and we have a house there. So we go there every summer. So I've been going to Europe ever since I was a kid. However, it was always just Portugal. That's where we went and particularly the South of Portugal, which is, by no means, you know, it's, it's a very simple, beautiful um, town called Tavira. And there's not much beyond going to the beach, eating pasta de nata, and, and just basically relaxing for hours and days on end. Um, and so I've always known that, but that never really, you know, that was Europe to my extent. Um, when I went to Europe by myself for the first time, I started my journey in Paris. Um, and I basically went away for six weeks, uh, hopping from city to city, um, I went to Paris, Amsterdam, uh, Barcelona, London. Um, where else? Br- uh, Antwerp and Brussels, uh, which is a funny story. And yeah, I, I really though what catalyzed that shift for me was uh, when I went to Paris, uh, and I landed there on 14 uh, juillet, which is like the Fourth of July of Paris and it was the most incredible evening of my life. Uh, Like the city was ablaze with warmth and like community And it was just so much fun. And like, I, 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 yeah, like just had an incredible time with my Airbnb hosts. And I was like, Oh my God, there's so much more to life than like making money and being a finance bro. Like, this is so like limiting, you know, I, I, I hadn't considered like, just like the verbosity of life. And so that simply that night, like kind of catalyzed a shift. And then I got the bug and it was like, I need to go everywhere and see everything. That
0: makes so much sense. Is, is that the first instance of Flaneur? Is that the first experience? And can you give a rundown to the listeners what the word actually means? Because it's a very beautiful, not, I mean, easily translated into English, but it's just a feeling that is embodied so perfectly by this French word.
1: I love that you call it a feeling, because I could not agree more. Um, so flaneur is derived from uh, a French noun, uh, or verb, excuse me, called uh, flannery, um, which is the art of strolling, of wandering aimlessly. And it was a term coined by the poet Baudelaire uh, in the 19th century, um, where basically you know Paris post-Industrial Revolution had its first kind of capitalistic moneyed class, And so the art of leisure became something that like existed in society, which up until that time, you know, was really restricted to like the Uber elites. And so what would happen is you'd have men who, you know, uh, unfortunately, they were men, um, just men, I should say. And uh, they would, you know, have time to be able to like kind of stroll around, go visit markets, have a glass of wine with their friends and chat and, you know, really not talk about business, but just talk about life. Um, and really, just contemplate what it means to be alive. And you know, you started to see like the um, philosophical schools spring up, and you know, like the, the whole lore of like Café de Fleur and like the you know philosopher society, like that kind of emanated from the word flannery. And simply, what it means and the feeling that you describe is just when you wander around a city um, with nowhere to go and no intention, but just to go see, you know, to to see the the spectacle that is like life. You know, and it's an incredible, um, incredibly simple yet profound thing to do. And I found that when I traveled alone for the first time, my biggest inclination was to just go out and walk. You know, I didn't really have—I had like ideas of where I wanted to go, but it was more like, "Hey, I want to go see this." But oh, wow, this is a charming street. I got to walk down it. Let's see. You know, and um, I would do that, and it just felt incredibly authentic to who I was as a person.
0: Yeah, that that your. Your Instagram handle was actually my first introduction to the word, and I, I looked it up for whatever reason, because I'm like, that's an interesting thing. And I went down a rabbit hole separately that you actually never know until this moment that I'm sharing with you, and it was really impactful to read yeah. about. And, and, you know,
1: like, I, I'm getting so excited hearing you say that, because this goes back to the thing you had said when we opened about, like, not being able to pronounce Alimentari planur like it's not about being able to pronounce it. it's about the thrill of discovering it. And then you experiencing that joy and that curiosity and me being excited about you having it. And like, now we can experience it together, which I think is so beautiful. You know, um, I, I really get excited when those opportunities are created uh, for people.
0: Totally. And now we need to jump back again because i'm i'm excited i'm getting ahead of myself but with uh, with the app that you launched post yeah. your trip <laughs> where, where did that net out and, oh, and how yeah. was that how did you approach that differently um, than any other project previously
1: uh yeah so my app was this was like 2013 um it was called my style so basically i had like really developed an interest in fashion and i always kind of enjoyed dressing well and i loved menswear and I used to wear suits all the time because I wanted to be Gordon Gecko. And so I would literally wear suits to school until like my friends parties and everyone thought I was insane. Uh, I, I like, yeah, I, I, as I said, I voted for Mitt Romney. I also like went for him as hol- in like in Halloween one year, which is like really embarrassing. I should not be sharing this. I'm totally going to get canceled, but um, <laughs> not on my watch. No. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I loved suits. And so I would always see like these guys on Instagram, like posting like fit pics, you know, and I'd always be like, wow, like I really want to know where you got that blazer or that tie or whatever. And so I started to see like this hashtag, like outfit of the day or like fit pic or whatever and i'd be like oh i wonder if you could like buy clothes from the image or at the very least be like redirected to like be able to discover it and so what my style was supposed to be was a way for you to be able to buy clothes off of instagram pictures um and this was in 2013 and then the idea was like okay well we found out really quickly that that was like extremely difficult to do it i have no coding background at all and so i was like all right i i'm not going to go learn how to code even though like At the time, it seemed like all you had to do was like take a course for 30 days and learn how to code and you'll be a billionaire overnight, which admittedly I did think was going to happen. And so after learning and like talking with guys in India about like how to build this app, I discovered that that was nearly impossible to do what I wanted to do. So instead, what I wanted to become was a essentially like a social media platform for guys to like share photos of their outfits. Um, And then we, would like, through hashtag hyperlinking, would, like, redirect you to the retailer's site and give you the opportunity to discover the product for yourself. Um, Suffice to say, uh, we never got above, like, a beta of the app. Um, And uh, it was a wonderful failure, but extremely fun to do. And uh, very, yeah, just, like, it was my first foray into doing something on my own. Uh, which I really appreciate. I learned a lot.
0: Totally, yeah, and you, you, the, all the lessons. Unfortunately, they usually tend to be the more expensive lessons. Are so key in crafting, however, you approach your next project. So, uh, it's an unnecessary, well, not unnecessary, unnecessary, and not even that unfortunate of a series of events, I'd say, because you just as long as you can take something away from each bit, there's there's a reason that things happen
1: yeah for sure and I think that was one of the most valuable lessons that I had but obviously being you know 19 I was like I thought it was the end of the world I was so ashamed you know and I was like I really beat myself up over that for not like succeeding but I look back at it now and I laugh I'm like you were you know 19 20 years old like working with your best friends from high school none of you of which have developed any coding knowledge whatsoever and like not even that, but like you also barely knew anything about apps. Like true story, I once Googled what's the difference between software and hardware because <laughs> I d I didn't know. <laughs> so the chances of success were extremely slim in retrospect. So it's it's funny. I look back at it now and I laugh, but it's yeah, it, it was I think a, a valuable lesson because I learned two things. One, don't take it so seriously and like know that you grow from things, but two I also learned just how hard it is to do one thing right. Don't try to do 10.
0: Totally. Yeah. Uh, two key lessons. How did you go from building apps and potentially being the next Gordon Gecko to what you're doing now, which is essentially curating beautiful and potentially obscure produce that, yeah. that people may not uh, come in contact with?
1: Yeah, I, I've had a, a, a weird career in life thus far. So um, after I failed my app, I did not want to go back to school. And so I told my parents, I'm like, hey, I really don't want to go back to NYU. Um, You know, like I, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I don't have any money. Like, what do you think I should do? And they're like, well, you know, you're you love finance, you love math and you love people. Why don't you go into real estate? Like, you know, I think you'd be great for it. And I was like, okay, like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I started to read about, you know, like real estate brokerage and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. So I was 19 at the time and I like researched, okay, who are the best like real estate brokerages in New York city? And I'm going to cold email them and just like pitch myself. And so like I saw, it was like Douglas Ellman, Corcoran and Brown Harris Stevens. And so I wrote this email, of like I'm a, you know, 19 year old entrepreneur. I, I just launched this app, but you know, I learned this lesson and Um, You know, I I love people and I love finance and I studied economics and, you know, my family's been in retail business for a very long time in New York City. uh, And I think I'd be great at this and I'd love to work with you. And I I sent like a dozen emails. And I remember like I got two emails back, one from Douglas Elliman and one from Corcoran. And both of the managing directors were like, oh, this seems interesting, like come in for an interview. And so I went and I interviewed with this guy, Gene Martinez, who was a managing director at Corcoran in Soho. And I had this like two hour meeting with him talking about my life philosophy and like what I wanted to achieve and, you know, just everything that I had learned in my travels and so on and so forth. And he was like, look, you know, you would be the youngest person we'd ever hired as an agent. Uh, but, you know, we I, I have this feeling that you're going to be successful. I could just tell, you know, like I, I, there's something about you that like, I feel good about. And he's like, you have to go get your license though. And I was like, well, how long does that take? And he's like, well, you know, you just gotta study and take it and you know, it should take you a couple of weeks. And so he hired me even before I got my real estate license. And wow. um, yeah, and so I did that. And then literally a month in, my family owned a uh, retail asset in Soho, um, which was the Montclair store on Prince Street at the time. And my mom was getting like LOIs for like a crazy amount of money. And LOIs for anybody who doesn't know, it's just letters of intent to purchase a property. And so I was like, hey, Ma, like, I think, you know, let me, let me like work on this, you know, like, let me see. And so she was like, okay, it doesn't hurt, you know? And so I went to my managing director. I'm like, hey, like, I, you know, I have this property. Like, I don't know how much I think it's worth, but like, I, I'd love to do like an analysis and see. And he's like, okay, well, this is a big deal. Like, let me partner with a senior broker, whatever. Long story short, a year later or a year and a half later, um, I had to close about $100 million worth of real estate sales um, <laughs> in my first year and a half, which that property was $50 million. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I did this incredible deal. It was a record sale per square foot. Um, we sold it to a private equity group uh, called uh, Safra and SIT Asset Management. And this, that singular sale um, catalyzed my entire journey as an entrepreneur and even the market that I'm doing today Everything stems from that moment, um, which harkens to like the death of retail, the retail apocalypse, the greed of uh, real estate developers in New York City, um, retail strategy and development. And all of that kind of, you know, led to the domino effect that got me to this point now where now I'm just a simple guy selling fruits and vegetables But what I have been able to experience in my short career thus far was I went from being a 21-year-old who just did $100 million in sales to being an intern at Barney's to working for my family uh, in Grace's Marketplace in their grocery store uh, to now having my own little market. Um, But every single choice I've made since the day that I closed on that sale has been to really begin to really understand how to build a sustainable retail business. Totally and just the
0: the benefit of having some experience within the family across every aspect that you you're putting in your utility belt now so to speak. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about your family's involvement with Grace's marketplace and, and sure. how that kind of helped craft your approach to Alimentari for Lenore?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean I, so this is something that I'm excited to talk about because um, I, this is one thing I hate about like the entrepreneur origin story. And I love Guy Raz and like how I built this. I think it's an incredible podcast, but I truly despise how like in every entrepreneur origin story, it's always like, you know, oh, like this entrepreneur, like, you know, through thick and thin, like somehow, some way they made it work. And, you know, just like by sheer luck and grit and effort. And what really bothers me about that is that I find that they often don't talk about a lot of the benefits that that entrepreneur had to get to that position. And so for me, I think it's important that as I tell my story, I'm very transparent about the fact that I've had a lot be able to help me even take this risk. Um, one, my family you know, has been in the grocery business for well over 100 years in New York City. Um, my great-grandfather started with a pushcart cart um, selling produce uh, called Balducci's uh, in 1918, which then became a 24-hour fruit and vegetable market in Greenwich Village which then became the first ever specialty food store in New York City and you know, by every right, a, a iconic uh, retail institution in the city. Um, and then after selling that, my grandparents opened Grace's Marketplace um, on the Upper East Side, which also has become a very iconic store in its own right. Um, and then we've had, you know, my family's had multiple stores, um, you know, my cousins, I should say, Agrenton Valentino's Valentina's one, my other cousin, my third cousin, owns a wholesale distribution company called Baldor, which is one of the biggest companies in, Europe, in, in the tri-state, excuse me, or actually in the northeast in terms of produce distribution. Um, so I've been given this incredible opportunity based off of just my lived experience growing up of, like, being connected to that world. Um, so I know it's, like, cliche to say, but this business is more or less in my DNA. Um, oh, of course. Cliche
0: or not, it's true. If, if it's been around you and of course you're going to be soaking up nuggets of insight and yeah. it's just ingrained in you so yes of course i totally yeah. agree
1: with you and with that being said um you know the the thing is as well is that i recognized like the advantage that i've had in that but on the other token like i also tried to not be the person who like worked for the family i i that idea so i always felt like i owed it to myself to prove that i didn't need to Um, you know, I recognize I grew up very privileged and very lucky and fortunate. So I've always thought, behooved me to like prove that I didn't need to do that. Like I didn't need to rely on my family to like build a life for myself. So I tried to do that. Um, and I felt like I did it, uh, for most of my life, but there was times where, you know, again, like after coming, I moved to Paris, I don't know if we talked about this. I moved to Paris after I graduated NYU, um, because I did end up going back to school and I started a creative agency there that failed in three months. Uh, we'll talk about that another time, but I you know, was in a financial hole and I had a job to able to fall back to with my family, which I'm tremendously grateful for. So I say all of this because I think it's important to recognize that even as I'm building Alimentari, um, I had, you know, tremendous amount of support and opportunity to learn, you know, just from the you know, divine chance that I had growing up in the family that I did, but also, having some safety nets that I think not everybody else has had. Um, with that being said, the thing that I have taken away from graces and my family and the thing that I've truly tried to make this about me as far as alimentari, is I, as I learned about Balducci's and I read on the history of, you know, what we did and how my family built the business over many decades, I learned three very important lessons, which kind of harkens to my motto. One is that quality is a matter of fact, which is my grandma always says. Um, Two is that good things literally take time. Um, my, my great-grandfather took 50 years to go from a produce market, or excuse me, a produce push cart to a market to an emporium. Uh, but it took him a very long time to build those three businesses. Um, and they all happened organically. You know, There was no like private equity investment, no venture capital, no like you know PR blitz. It, it just took grit and effort and time. Um, and I think that that is a wonderful... Um, allegory for just, you know, anything that is of quality, it it takes time and effort and commitment. Uh, And so I really embody that value. And then the third thing, as far as intimacy, um, I really believe in the virtues of a family business. Uh, And what that means to me is as a family business, everybody is bought in, right? Everybody has skin in the game. Innately, you have to. Uh, And I I believe that those values are so important um, when you build a team or a company or a brand is that you have to treat it like a family business. Um, And I always say to my partner, Brooke, um, who's my lover and also works with me and is an incredible farmer, um, I only want to work with people who have skin in the game. And what that means to me is that they support what I'm doing independent of if they worked with me. Um, So even like the graphic designer I hired for my logo, like I needed to know that she would shop in my store because she loved it and not just because I'm paying her to do this. Right. Um, and that, that influences almost every decision I make is, does this person who I'm about to either invest in or hire or, you know, collaborate with, do they really care about the story and brand and experience that I'm creating, or are they just doing it because it helps them? Um, and so, yeah, those, th- those three things I would say really influenced, um, you know, how I went about building Alimentari. Um, yeah, sorry. I should say specifically to your question, um, As I studied Grace's and Balducci's, the thing that struck me um, was just the care and love and appreciation for the produce that my great grandparents and grandparents sourced and how that was always the thing that people talked about. And I began to understand just how much produce was central to like a quality grocery experience. But then the other thing was always about the hospitality. Um, If you ask anybody about Balducci's or Grace's, they always have a story about like the first time they went in to buy something and like, you know, my grandfather made them feel so special or, you know, my great-grandfather told them something about that particular strawberry or my uncle gave them a sample of something. Everyone always has a story about those experiences. And I I realized is that for grocery, I tried to show my family when I was working with them that we had to go back to those roots of, you know, committing to things like produce um, in a really unique way, but also committing to the hospitality and experience of the market. Um, And I think what's happened... For retail is that eventually you get so big that it's nearly impossible to imbue a space with hospitality Uh, generally you can only do that at hotels or restaurants or philosophy exists and so what i realized was i had an incredible opportunity um, through my own experience you know traveling in europe and living in paris and you know just loving shopping so much and experiencing and like you know being a flaneur connecting with shop owners and shopkeepers was that i could create a space that was committed to like quality curation Um, you know, and simple provisions that, you know, maybe people haven't discovered before, but I created a space for them to do so, but also really imbue the grocery shopping experience with a sense of hospitality.
0: Definitely. And I can, I can vouch for you having that at the forefront of your brand, because I've watched you in the market, just pick a piece of produce up from the basket and be talking to one of the customers that's just exploring the market and be like, hey, try this, taste this, you need to taste this. And that level of, of hospitality I think is very rare and definitely nothing you see in a large grocery store, let alone some, some of the smaller specialty stores, but just that, that act of trial and experience, I think it, it speaks a lot to alimentary fun so that was amazing to witness both firsthand by trying some of the produce that you handed me and seeing you emb- repeat that with other customers yeah. uh, is, is really special. Um, how, how are you thinking about expansion and, and what, is, what does the future look like for you?
1: Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm figuring that out. Um, what, what I will say is that, for one, um, the, the way that we're going to expand and scale the business, and, and I use scale very carefully, is I believe in this motto of intimacy at scale, um, which for me means is that you tell a story that you wholeheartedly believe in and then you try to tell another story. So let's circle back to someone who I really admire. Two of my heroes in our industry, Danny Meyer, who of course built Union Square Hospitality, and then Rita Sody and Jody Williams, who are the chef and owners of my favorite restaurants in the city, Via Crota, uh, Bouvette, Isodi, Bar Bisolino, etc. cetera. Uh, the thing that I admire about them is that they embody what I believe is intimacy at scale. So when Danny Meyer started Union Square Cafe and it became successful, his next thing wasn't to open 10 union square cafes and raise private equity money to do that. He decided, okay, now I'm going to open Gramercy Tavern and tell a completely different story with different cuisine and take that challenge. And then he consistently would do that time and time again until eventually he found his scale vehicle by accident with Shake Shack, which that is so encouraging and exciting to me because I think creatively it forces you to think of yourself as almost like a filmmaker, right? You don't set out to the direct trilogies all the time. You set out to tell stories. Um, same with Rita Sodi and Jody Williams. I think they, they've done that, right? Where they open Soti, they open Vet, and then they collaborate and open Diacrota. And, you know, every restaurant has its own ambiance, its own story, its own experience. Which is to say, for Alimentari, what I think is going to happen is that we have now told our first story in the Essex market, um, which I'm tremendously proud of and excited by. Um, And we have some really fun ideas about how we want to build the brand. And I think, you know, for the brand itself, the brand story, I mean, the way we scale the business is probably starting to introduce CPG goods and, you know, developing a whole line of that. But I don't envision Almentari being a business that I have 25 stores uh, around the country. Um, If anything, I think my goal is to open four, um, one in Lower East Side, one in the West Village, one in Greenpoint, and then one somewhere else in Brooklyn. Um, each of those stores ideally would be amenitized with the right retail real estate partners, um, where they really serve the community and the building upstairs. Um, but beyond that, that would be it. And so my next goal would be to tell another story, uh, which is incredibly challenging, but also I think creatively and emotionally fulfilling. Um, so if I was to say what the ideal way Alimentari grows is, um, my company would be Alimentari has four stores. We have a pretty cool line of CPG goods, our family's olive oil, really great preserves, spices, pastas, sauces, etc. cetera. Um, and then my ultimate goal is to open um, a masseria, which is essentially a farmhouse um, in Italy on my family's farm, and then one in Portugal with my, my father uh, and my grandmother. Um, and that would be what I would want to do. So my goal is to open markets and then have my two little B&Bs and quite honestly as much as i love what i do because i don't consider myself working at all these days my goal is to work as little as possible i want to enjoy life um, and so that's why i laugh because i when i tell like my strategy i know that any private equity or vc person would run for the hills completely and that's okay and that's that's what i want i don't you know i'm not doing this to build a 100 million dollar business i'm doing this to tell stories and with
0: intention which yes. I think is very important.
1: Yes, completely. And, and you know, it's, it's authentic to me because this is my lived experience. And, you know, my hope is that people appreciate the story that I'm telling and they want to be a part of it because they identify with it. And we take that journey together.
0: Definitely. Two more questions, then I'll let you be on your way. Um, the first, what's your, uh, what's your life motto? Is there any life motto or mantra that you use to guide moves you make, decisions you make, or just get you through?
1: Yeah, you know, I I thought about that when you sent it over, and I I really was trying to think about what my life motto is because honestly, I I don't really have one. Um, But I I think the more I reflect, the thing that I say most to Brooke whenever we have a problem with the business or an issue or whatever is, "We'll make the best of it." So that would be my life motto: make the best of it. I love Um, that. At the end of the day, you can't control what's going to happen. If a pandemic strikes, it happens. You know, I, I. we, we have no control in that sense. All that we can control is how we react. And so my default position would always be to make the best of it. That's so important.
0: Where can people find you online or in person?
1: Yeah, um, I would say um, you could find me at uh, Alimentari Flanor on Instagram or at Le. But if you really want to connect, which I encourage you to do, come to the Alimentari. Uh, I'm there every single day. And uh, I really would enjoy walking you around and getting you to try things and experience new things. And we could work and practice on our Italian and French together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Daniel, thank you so much for doing this. Likewise, Phil. I really appreciate having me on.